Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 251st episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's looking forward to the complete Cal Time spoilers. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good evening, listeners. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you for our, I suppose this makes this our Christmas episode. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what is on our agenda this not-so-snowy Christmas Eve-ish? Oh, well, you know, it's not snowy right now, but isn't it supposed to start tomorrow, I think? It's entirely possible that Buffalo will spread some strange snow disease yeah. in, my, in our direction. It's, it's very much on the horizon. Uh, segment one, we should talk about the regional weather patterns more often on our finance, <laughs> or international finance That's what everybody's podcast. after. Um, segment one, our Medigo, Medigo, Medigame Medigo. Week in Review for Medigo. Segment two, our top paper movers, where we'll look at the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Bit of a, uh, a theme or two on that one, followed by our top MTGO movers. Segment three, our paper cards to watch. Some cards James and I have our eyes on in terms of uh, possibly gaining some value there. And then segment four, our topic of the week, uh, the call time spoilers have started in earnest. And there's also some unofficial spoilers out there which I guess we'll decide if we're going to talk about when we get there. Um, Starting off the top of the episode is our Pioneer Challenge from just a couple days ago. Looks like uh, Blue-White Control taking it down again, um, because I'm pretty sure they won last week. Oh, no, last week was Salt-Eye Control. Uh, But still some pretty familiar uh, bad guys there. Uh, Lotus Field Combo, Salt-Eye Control down in 4th and 5th and 7th. Um, Black White Auras, the SRAM deck down in six, and Teamer Control showing up this week, which I don't think we've seen much of so far. Yeah, Blue White Control is actually a bit of a, a novelty in Pioneer. Um, we're much more used to seeing Jeskai, sometimes with Yorion, sometimes not, sometimes 80 cards, sometimes not as a result. Um, they're usually playing things like uh, Anger of the Gods uh, in the Teamer deck. Uh, teamer control versions and in the Jeskai versions you tend to see uh, a variety of things that pop into play and have an effect that that Yorion can uh, abuse so blue white by itself is uh, is uh, a little novel 
Lotus Field, Teamer Control, Sultai, Black White Uros, all known quantities. And the universal through all of this is Uro, 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 and more Uro. And he's apparently this ubiquitous in Historic as well on Arena. So there seems to be some debate as to whether Uro needs to get a, a ban. Because <laughs> card is just everywhere. Well, it doesn't sound like people are all that interested in continuing the play with him. So, you know, given Wizards' track record on these types of cards in the past, I wouldn't be surprised to see Uro go in the near future just for the sake of breathing room on the rest of the, for the rest of the format. I mean, oddly enough, top eights for... I mean, this, this week is very Uro-heavy, but recent weeks have been Uro-present more or less all the time, but not dominant, uh, as we see in this particular top eight. Um, it could easily catch a ban in Historic before Pioneer. They may well leave Pioneer alone until paper resumes. Yeah, possibly they might feel like uh, they can just let that run its course and then sort of have a reawakening of the format when paper resumes. But at the same time, if they let Pioneer go to shit and just decide to go total hands-off on it, by the time they get to paper, people may just be sick of it. I don't know. I would imagine Wizards is probably stuck trying to figure out how they're going to handle this themselves. Now, over in the Modern Champs Qualifier, which is, this was a Pioneer Challenge we looked at this week, but a Modern Champs Qualifier, which is a higher level tournament. Prowess Burn in first, uh, a consistent contender. Saltai Control doing well in both of these formats. Four Uro, three Jace the Mind Sculptor, and four Archmage's Charm, some Cryptic Commands, Wilderness Reclamation, etc. Four Color Omnath, which I'm pretty sure also runs Uro in third. Burn in fourth, more traditional burn, more burn spells, less creatures. Uh, uh, Primeval Titan deck in fifth that doesn't have the amulet to go with it, but does have four Elvish Reclaimer, four Primeval Titan, and four Dryad of the Elysian Grove. Green Red Midrange has popped up several times this year in top eights, and here we have more or less the same list again. Three Clothis, uh, three Red and Six, three Chandra Torch of Defiance, four Blood Moon. Uh, a bit of a rampy mid-range deck that looks to lock uh, their opponents out of the game with some some d- definitive disruption like Blood Moon. Four-color Omnith again in seventh, and then Black-Red Shadow uh, making an appearance in the eighth place. I'm always glad to see some Blood Moon action. I'm, I'm a fan of the land destruction. I can't tell you how many decks I've brewed that had Molten Rain or Stone Rain in them. Fair enough. I mean, this looks like... The, you know, modern, more diverse overall than Pioneer, for sure. That's a consistent theme we've seen for weeks and months. Um, but we've got shakeups coming with Kaldheim, so who knows what new brokenness will be foisted upon us. Ho- hopefully. <laughs> All right, so Top Paper Movers of the Week, segment two, starting with Arctic Flats, the Cold Snap Foil Snow Duel going from 10 to 15 with the widely held belief that snow cards are incoming in Kaldheim. There's still some debate in the Pro Trader Discord as to whether this is true or not. Um, all rumors seem to point to it being true, but we don't have a revealed card as of yet that definitively says snow. Uh, now, as we'll get to in the fourth segment, there are some leaks that have popped up this a- as of this afternoon on Facebook, vis a vis somebody claiming that they cracked uh kaldheim cards out of a commander legends pack uh a trick that we have a story that a narrative that we have seen more than once yeah um so we'll go through that in more depth in the final segment 
Moving right along here, Oboro Palace in the Clouds foils out of Saviors of Kamigawa from 50 and change, say 52, 53, up to about 80 or so. It just basically means sold out uh, on the foils. There's no reprints of this card ever, and Kamigawa was a long time ago, 15 to 20 years um, off the top of my head. Some of these left overseas in various pockets, but not a whole lot. Uh, So, And I don't see this being a priority reprint anytime soon, so... Uh, this may well be a $100 foil before all is said and done. Yeah, that strikes me as one of those cards that will trigger, will hit that price, and like one person will buy one copy at $100, and they'll sort of float around there, but there won't really be any movement on it, and then it'll get show up in you know some version of Commander Legends or whatever. Mystery Boosters or yeah. something. And they'll eat it. Well, depending on whether or not they give it to us in foil. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. It, it would cut... My comments are predicated on it being reprinted in foil. Um, and I mean, even if you know it showed up in Commander Legends 2 or whatever, Modern Horizons 2 in foil, the original would still hold a hefty price tag, but it would move very rarely. And based on the current slate of products that we know about, that could easily be 2022 or beyond. So, yeah. Which uh, will give you time to sell probably two of these. <laughs> yeah. Phyrexian Devourer is a fairly bad card out of Alliances, non-foils from 6 to 13. This is a reserve list card, and the march to mop up with a lolling tongue, the bottom of the reserve list barrel, is a never-ending process. Yep. That's, uh, that's the reserve list for you. Spirit of the Labyrinth out of Born of the Gods foils from 8 to 18. I want to say this was a pick on cast two years ago. I'm going to have to go back and check. Oh, uh, certainly. Two or three years ago, maybe. The... Wait, were we... Okay, I was going to say, wait, were we recording when this came out? But we... Oh, yeah. Well, hold on. Oh, Born of the Gods? No, oh I don't God. think so. 2014, right? No, no. Born of the Gods was winter 2015. Wiki Born of the Gods. I refuse to look it up. Uh, oh, come on. February 2015. Don't put the year on here when I click on it. It was 2014, February 2014. Okay. So, so it yeah, be it's, a, it's a year before s- we started recording. Well, more than that, it, it came out in February 2014. So February 2021 is just after our five years, and that mm-hmm. would have been seven, six, seven years ago. So it was two years before we started recording. I remember when this came out, it was uh attempting spec target i'm pretty sure i made a point to trade for these where i could expecting it to become a prominent card and here we go seven years later i'm finally getting paid (laughs) off i feel like i have some of these in a bad spec box but non-foils yeah i am like 99 percent sure i have some over in my spec box and also non-foils because you just saw that was like i was still trading out of a binder at that point in time i think yeah all right so anyway Legacy Death and Taxes is probably what's driving this as long as well as some EDH play. It's in 4,800 uh, reported decks on EDH rec. White needs all the help it can get in that format. Doesn't have a lot of tre- a tremendous amount of card draw. So forcing your your uh, opponents to play fair or waste a kill spell on a 2-1 is uh, a reasonable uh, approach to be taking. Elvish Promenade foils at a Lorwyn from 16 to 50 on the back of Elves being revealed in Kaldheim. Jester's Mask is another reserve list card that felt really powerful back in the day and is actually quite terrible. From $4 to $18, 350% gains. I 
if you can if you manage to sell one of these over 10 you do do go ahead and let us know ingenious <laughs> infiltrator out of modern horizons foil uncommon out of that set from four to over 20 it says 24 but who knows what the real price is i suppose you could probably get somebody to pay 15 to 25 on these if they really need them because there is dual demand on this card from yuriko in two formats because yuriko is both a ninja's deck in legacy as well as a reasonably popular commander and the combination of the two makes this card uh, a must-have if you're running Yuriko decks. I am waiting for my other Yuriko specs to pay off here. Uh, although I think uh, Keeper of the Keys actually definitely made some progress a little while ago, so I'm counting that as a win. Um, yeah, Yuriko is a nifty commander. Probably, I think, will have a slow burn popularity over the years just by virtue of being a cool ninja. Um, yeah. Dwarven Recruiter out of Odyssey, non-foils a dollar to six or seven. Dwarf Hype for Kaldheim, foils are up over 30. Uh, it lets you pull uh, dwarves out and put them on top of your deck. So uh, if you're going to try to scrape together a dwarf strategy in EDH, you're going to want this card. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, it's entirely possible this card is in the set. Could be in Kaldheim. But uh, tutoring is pretty dangerous in standard, so could easily be a miss as well i am going to go out on a limb here and say there's no possible way they reprint dwarven recruiter in standard i mean primarily because this is the most powerful version of the creature tutors we get um that have been played out over the years in magic if you remember uh there was goblin recruiter which was mm -hmm. Was that okay? You know, again, I could look, but instead, it's more fun to guess on cast and sound wrong. Uh, Goblin Recruiter was search for any number of goblin cards, put them on top of your library. That card was busted in half for a long time. Dwarven Recruiter is the same thing, it's three mana, search for library for any number and put them on top. But the more recent versions of these um and i'm stretching on the definition of recent here but you had like uh trefoil harbinger and the other harbingers from lorwyn which searched for one card and put it on top of your library not any of them so dwarven recruiter searching for any number of dwarf cards <coughs> very powerful for a three mana creature because that allows you to either stack your deck with like two or three bombs or like the silver bullet dwarf type of thing that you want to go find just seems tough to imagine that making it its way into standard there's also the winota style of tutoring where you don't have to search and reshuffle because they're not a huge fan of that in the first place and the whole premise of not having fetches in pioneer and standard was that people have to shuffle and and fool around with their decks less. So it could be something like check the top six cards of your deck, find a dwarf, put it in your hand. Yeah. Or so put it into play attacking if something's attacking. You know, three mana, two, two, reveal the top six cards. You may put any number of dwarves or equipment cards into your hand. Sure. Right. That feels like it would fit. And I, I you know, like everyone else on the planet, I went looking for dwarven recruiters for the second time in uh, roughly as many years be you know the first time being kaladesh and obviously found virtually none of them or else that would have been my pick um just by virtue of it being a odyssey foil yeah i mean it was it was a hot topic when the dwarf news was confirmed in the pro trader discord for sure uh winter's night out of alliances dollar fifty to ten dollars this is basically a mana flare for snowlands so if you believe that snowlands are incoming in kaldheim then that's where this is coming from Lovisa Cold Eyes at a Cold Snap, 
Uh, it also got a, a dual deck printing at one point. Uh, Cold Eye is going from $1.50 to over 10 on the back of Berserkers being a creature type uh, of prominence in Kaldheim. We've already seen a few official spoilers that are Berserkers. Uh, and Leviza gives Berserkers plus two, plus two or something. Yeah, supposedly uh, Brainstorm was talking about this, which I would imagine uh, moved a little bit of prices too if some of their listeners went and got involved. Sure. Uh, Dwarven Blood Boiler, Head of Judgment, uh, 50 cents to $7. Again, Dwarf Hype in Kaldheim. This lets you tap dwarfs to give attacking creatures plus two, plus zero, or something like that. Um, and it's the kind of thing you might have sitting around in binders that you considered worthless. And uh, if you have a place out of those, you might want to pop them up on uh, eBay and see if you can dump them. He's uh, real juicy because he's not just a dwarf, but he is set up to work perfectly with uh the new dwarf commander magda because of the way that they work he allows you to tap dwarves at no cost in order to do something and magda rewards you with the treasure token every time a dwarf becomes tapped yeah that's that's some very powerful synergy and Magda's giving your doors plus one plus zero so if you're tapping a dwarf to give something plus two plus zero then it's at minimum plus three plus zero and you can start fooling around with first strike, double strike, whatever, trample, put an ember cleave on a dwarf, go to town in EDH. Yeah, I presume the play pattern there is sit around with my creatures untapped and at the end of my last opponent's turn, tap every dwarf I have to generate like six to- treasure tokens. Yeah. Untap, you know, nice little uh, play style there. All right, so that's the end of the paper movers of the week. Over on Magic Online, we've got Engineered Explosives. Did, did we remember to say the name of a single card at the end of us discussing it? Well, there, there was a request uh, from the pro traders today that if we're having long-winded discussions about cards, mention the card again at the end of the discussion. I'm not sure that any of those top paper movers really qualify. Okay, so we're going to go with it didn't count. It didn't count. here i'll try i'll try it for this segment we'll see how it goes engineered explosives uh ultimate masters box topper version on magic online so a promo version that's probably only available in treasure chests or might have been a uh prize distribution model for uma drafts or something uh although i can't remember if there were any 450 to 593 so 30 gains um steel shaper's gift promo uh version from 1139 15.26 tickets, 34% gains, uh, increased modern play for that that fancy Paladin equipment deck. Uh, again, that is Stale Shaper's Gift. Flagstones of Trocare out of Ultimate Masters, 6.42 tickets to 8.80, 37% gains. That's been seeing play in a couple of different modern decks. Croxa Titan of Death's Hunger out of Theros Beyond Death from 12.53 tickets to 17.88. Uh, it's you know, there's a dwindling supply of these on Magic Online, and there has been an increase of in play across both Pioneer and Modern here and there. So 42% gains total for Croxa. And then Hangerback Walker Masterpiece Series version, uh, as in Kaladesh Masterpieces, 3.24 ticks to 5.58 ticks, total of 72%. Uh, probably on the back of hardened scales in modern seeings, uh, a little bit of a resurgence the last few weeks with the multiple 5 lists. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Getting some some hard and scales action. There's another pick that we uh, has has done pretty well, but we'd really like to see a little bit more out of. 
All right, so moving on over to cards to watch this week. Uh, my theme for the week is Modern Horizons foils that are draining out, have drained out, or are setting up with fairly impressive ramps. Uh, and of course, with a ramp, we, we are talking about um, if you're looking at something that, say, has 20 or 30 copies left on TCG Player in Near Mint, um, you're looking for how quickly the price changes as you march down the page across the various vendors from the lowest price to the highest price. Um, some cards, you will see a very flat curve where the top 100 copies or so were all within a dollar or a dollar fifty of each other. Uh, when you see foils that have a very strong curve, moving from, say, 10 to 30 in a hurry, um, it's a pretty sure sign that, you know, 10, 20 sales later, you're going to have a card that's worth a different amount of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, first on my list this week, Ranger Captain of Eos is a mythic. Uh, this is moderate, you know, minor to moderate play in a couple of different places. It's in 3.5 thousand EDH rec decks since it came out, which is a solid but not amazing number. Um, it sees some modern play. There's been a resurgence of it uh, on Magic Online lately, and a couple of cute decks uh, that we talked about. Uh, I think it top aided in a sometime in the last month that we covered on cast. And the bottom line here is that there's just very low inventory. You can get these in North America or Europe for about the same price. You're talking about high 30s, somewhere between 36 and 40 you're going to pay. I think this can easily get to 60 in, say, 6 to 12 months at the outside. Could easily be less than that. On the back of just this modest amount of play draining out foils, which are, in fact, quite rare compared to uh, foils that are put out these days. Because, again, Modern Horizons had the old foil drop rate you get one, maybe two, but usually one foil rare or mythic per box. And there's only 24 packs in those boxes, if I'm not mistaken. Whether there's uh, 30, 36 or 24. Uh, I, no, I, I think, think it's 36. Short set. I thought that was one of the short ones. I'll double check, but it doesn't really matter. The, the bottom line is foils are hard to come by from the set. So, And the other thing is that people have kind of given up on opening this set. And we've got Modern Horizons 2 coming out next summer. Uh, I don't expect many reprints from Modern Horizons 1 to make it into Modern Horizons 2. And uh, as a result, we're going to be in just about the right time frame where people are starting to think about Modern Horizons cards and starting to think next summer about playing paper again, because hopefully a, you know, a significant percentage of the North American population, European population, and Asian populations will have vaccines by then. And could very easily see there being a short list of 15, 20, 25 cards from Modern Horizons that are spiking pretty hard uh, from a combination of EDH and Modern play without any kind of reprint in sight. I think this is uh, exactly the type of card that I like to keep an eye out for when I'm looking for essentially truly speculative picks. It's a <clears throat> a card with a clear power level. It's It's potent. Um, we know that it's seen some play. It might not be lighting the charts on fire right now, but that's not an issue because if it were performing at the absolute top level, then you wouldn't have an opportunity. But it's it's made it clear that there is some some legs there. Um, combine that with a very low inventory um, with you know rare foils, and people might anticipate you're in a position to have these see a pretty good shift upwards when there's a little more attention on them down the road, whether by virtue of attrition over another year or so, or a metagame change, or people flooding back to stores to play Paper Magic. There's a lot of reasons that could be the catalyst here. 
Yeah. The Modern Horizons was 36 packs a box, for the record. Yeah. Uh, not that it makes much of a difference here. Yeah. Fine. Uh, I'm hopping on the, the Dwarf Train this week um, with SRAM, Senior Artificer, who I searched for. I searched for, I have to search for all these now, especially with uh, this long um, spreadsheet. But uh, SRAM, Senior Artificer, foils on a three to six month timeline. Uh, primarily the Kaladesh pack foils, although there are the pre-release foils. He SRAM Senior Artificer did show up in Commander Legends, but only in the pre-cons, which means there were no foils there. So that was a pretty good bump on non-foils, but no foils. You can get the foil SRAMs for about $8.50, maybe 9 bucks right now. He shows up as a card. SRAM, a Senior Artificer, shows up in about 8,000 EDH Reckless, maybe a little over that. He is popular in Pioneer. In fact, it 5-0'd in a recent Pioneer event uh, just yesterday. It also was in that Black White Auras deck, I believe, that we talked about from our Pioneer Challenge at the top of the episode. Uh, he is a dwarf, so he's going to show up in it, most likely in any red-white dwarf decks because those will also probably overlap with equipment. And we know Call Time is bringing more dwarves and equipment. So I think he's just at the intersection of several, several useful function series he's solid in edh is going to get better in edh with a bunch of new equipment focused dwarves and an equipment set in general um and also the black white auras deck is doing well in pioneer in fact i think um saffron olive was even tweeting about that earlier today as like oh this was a meme deck and then suddenly it wasn't a meme anymore so i think grabbing these pack foils around eight or nine bucks in position to get up to hopefully 16 maybe even 20 ish depending on how things shake out um, is going to reward you, especially with the Commander Legends pre-con reprint. You're probably safe on seeing more copies of these in foil for at least another year. I've said before uh, that pack foils aren't the, like, just generic modern pack foils aren't the most exciting thing for me, but that doesn't mean that they won't still sell. Um, and until there's a better version, this is the best one you can get. And even at 20 bucks, they're not terribly expensive. It's not like you're paying $60 for a boring pack foil when you could be holding out for an alt, you know an extended art or something like that. So SRAM, Senior Edificer, buy in at eight or nine bucks, hope to sh- hope to hit 15, probably maybe $20, um, maybe by the middle of next year. This card has a couple of things going for it. Not only is it possible to see ongoing play in both pioneer and modern depending on how uh tricksy equipment combo decks are built uh it has solid edh support i love the fact that it just caught a reprint and non-foil signaling that the foils are relatively safe and going into call time we have the dwarf theme we have artifact themes uh we have some equipment themes out of some uh cards reprinted in commander legends Uh, It's got a lot of uh, wind behind its back and should be safe, I would think, for for most of the year. Anything can show up in a secret layer. Anything can show up in a mystery booster type slot. It could, in theory, be a time spiral remastered old border foil, but seems unlikely to earn a spot there. I, I will say at the moment that I would consider almost... It's really it's going to be really hard for me to worry about the time spiral remastered component outside of anything other than like maybe mega 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how much I'm worried about that. It feels like it's going to be really hard to pin down possible reprints in that because there is such a ridiculously large number of cards they could target with that that it's just like I, you're talking about the like the last like what 15 years of Magic essentially are viable foil are viable targets for that. That's for, that's a that's a rough suite of cards to try and keep a handle around. Yeah, and it's actually I'm not clear on whether there's going to be premium product for time spiral remastered like whether there's going to be collector boosters mm. so that remains to be seen uh and in in the meantime this seems like a very rock solid very safe pick cool beans so nice. what else you got so along the lines uh same lines as ranger captain of eos we have another card that i know i've called uh, probably summer of 2019, Unbound Flourishing Foils at a Modern Horizons. Uh, currently can be had in Europe around 15, closer to low high teens, low 20s, depending on where you're buying in North America. Drying up 3.8, so four, almost 4,000 decks on EDH rec. Uh, for this to go 15 to 30, doesn't seem like it's going to be too tough. Very unique card isn't that old, unlikely to be targeted for a reprint anytime soon. And, you know, even if it was to pop up in a random commander deck along the way here, again, probably not in foil. And as such, I think uh, in the same sense that Ranger Captain of Eos is a mythic foil from uh, an expensive set that did not have a high foil drop rate, you got the same kind of thing going on with Unbound Flourishing. Yeah, uh, very casual oriented mythic foil you know generally not a lot of copy those around to begin with you've got a you know twenty dollars essentially is a low over here on tcg player if you're stealing them for 15 over the europe you're already ahead of the game um i agree that this is the type of card that i wouldn't anticipate seeing again anytime in the near future it's a little too niche to be worth putting in a lot of different locations so um yeah, this type of card I'd be on board with. If I was placing an order in Europe, I'd be throwing a couple of these in my cart. Yeah, I mean, there's still still a little ways to go here. I think there's something like 35 copies on TCG Player, but the ramp is pretty steep, and it's part of an overall trend line with Modern Horizons foils where they're just they're draining out. I mean, we saw Ingenious Infiltrator as a foil uncommon up over 20. So if, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me that Infiltrator is above Unbound Flourishing or Ranger Captain. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, Ranger Captain is already there. It's almost 40, but Unbound Flourishing at the same uh, rarity scale is almost a third the price as Ranger Captain, and Season Pyromancer is up in the 70 80 $90 range. So Flourishing should be easily able to close the gap. Yep, 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 for sure. I really like casual cards like this in general. <clears throat> All right, your next uh, pick of the week. Yes, yeah, still a little bit on the dwarf train. Oh, that was that was not intentional. <laughs> um, Dwarven Blast Miner uh, foils on a shorter time frame here, probably roughly three months. The pack foils for Dwarven Blast Miner and Onslaught are around $7 right now. Again, it's a dwarf. Uh, he taps to destroy non-basic lands. There's another, I think it's Dwarven Miner, is a similar card but that is only from mirage yeah dwarven miner from mirage does basically the same thing um 
So that is potential as well, but there's no foils there. Obviously, we're talking about Dwarven Blast Miner, which is from Onslaught, which are our foils for, again, around $7. Um, he's three mana tap, destroy a non-basic land, which means you can pick off your opponent's um, guys' cradles, herborgs, whatever suits your, floats your boat. And uh, which also works well, again, with Magda, since you tap him to blow up the land, which gives you a treasure token back. So you're kind of getting a refund on the ability. And that deck is, you know, any of these dwarf related decks are going to have to reach a little bit for playable dwarves. And I think he counts because he comes down cheaply and he's got some good utility later on in the game. Um, generally, like, you're not going to move a ton of these. And I'm not huge on tribal plays for the most part. Like, SRAM crosses several demand segments so i like him dwarven blast miner is definitely basically a pure tribal play which makes it softer but we're talking about onslaught foils so there's so few out there to begin with that you don't have to worry you're not trying to sell through a significant portion of inventory in order to support this i mean it's an onslaught foil you know it's the last of the old borders so you can pick these up at seven. Like there's only uh, there's six copies below ten dollars on TCG right now. So you can buy a couple dwarven you know buy a dwarven blast miner two from wherever you're you're finding them for inexpensive. Like if almost nobody from if like one percent of the listener of this cast buy one copy, the market's empty. And then you get to sell a copy for fifteen or twenty bucks to somebody who builds Magda and has kind of deep pockets, and will pay fifteen or twenty bucks. So I think just by virtue of how old Dwarven Blast Miner is and how low the inventory is, it makes it a safer tribal play than I otherwise might be interested in recommending. The hype cycle spikes; you want to get in and get out, but yeah. some of them come up again and again. You know, stuff like ninjas and dwarves and elves and whatever. And you can be wrong the first time and get caught holding for a little while. It goes in the bad spec box for 6, 12, 18 months. And then you pull it back out and flip it into the next hype cycle. The In this case, there's a bit, there's pretty good evidence that there's a bunch of interlocking themes uh, amongst the product suite for 2020, 2021. And the, even if we don't get dwarves in Strixhaven, uh, we're... Or and whether or not we get them in Modern Horizons two, we certainly will in the the D and D set this summer. Oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. The dwarves would be a uh, pronounced theme there, yeah. but that does make sense. Yeah, I mean you're gonna get humans, dwarves, elves, dragons, all the classic fantasy tropes uh, and tribes in the D and D set for sure, and then all of the classes that make up parties that as introduced in Zendikar Rising. Okay. And then probably some sense. extra stuff like clerics and paladins and rogues. I mean, clerics, yeah. paladins, uh, druids, and whatever. Yeah, I would expect cleric, clerics. Yeah, exactly. Clerics, paladins, and rogues. I think yeah, rogues, rogues we already got, right? Are... Rogues were in Zendikar Rising. Uh, yes, that sounds right. And rogues are definitely a magic thing. Like, what are the, what are the absolute biggest, um, Dungeons and Dragons classes or, yeah, classes? Wizard, Ranger, Paladin, Cleric, Rogue. Okay. Probably, probably the ones I see most often. Yeah. Okay. That's roughly what I was expecting, but that's a good point that dwarves are, are likely to show up there. Um, more so than I have been thinking about. You're also going to get some fighters and barbarians and yeah, sorcerers and um, 
druids, barbs, bards. bards. Oh yeah, bards for sure. That's a that's definitely a D and D thing that we don't really see too much of in the magic lore. There's definitely going to be some sort of like goofy bard, right? That's oh like yeah, a, a bard thing. commander for sure. Yeah, that's kind of weirdly powerful and plays. You know, I don't know what they do exactly in D and D. can play a flute to attract enemies to his side of the table or something or other. Yeah. It'll probably involve stealing stuff and treasure tokens, if Uh, recent design trends are any indication. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, yeah, I like that one. What card was this? This Dwarven Glass Miner, for those that are listening to us at three times speed and barely pay attention. The the Dwarven decks in EDH are going to need the help. (laughs) Destroying people's non-basic lands is a good way to make enemies and give yourself a little bit of an edge, so... That's very believable. Uh, Collector Oof is the last of my Modern Horizons foils. Six to 12 month horizon. I I give this one a nine as opposed to the eights and confidence level on the other two. Even though those are mythics, this one has the superior stats on EDH Rec. So 7,000 decks reported. It's also a cube card. It's going to have some casual appeal. It does show up uh, occasionally in constructed formats. And 20 copies left on TCG for these. You can pick them up in Europe around $20 or so. And for these to go 20 to 40 seems very easy. TCG, there's a few copies under 25 and then it's pushing 30 already. So I, I don't think it's good. This is one you're going to basically get in and out of these from 20 to 40 to 50 within a year without breathing too hard would be my best guess. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Again, the price point in Europe is very aggressive compared to America, so you're already getting a discount there. The card's real powerful. I think we identified it during the Modern Horizon spoilers as, I mean, the whole damn set had ridiculous cards, but maybe something somewhere along the lines of, I'm going to say a sleeper, like, oh, this isn't like the sexiest banner card, but we'll definitely have some ramifications in several places. Um so I, I like the card for sure. And uh, it's the type of thing that might be, you know, fringe and modern right now, but could definitely have days in the sun where it becomes a real big deal in modern, especially if uh, if there's a resurgence in artifact-based decks in that format. The decks that want to be doing this are running Karn the Great Creator with the same ability. Um, but the... This shows up in modern, in like Eladomri's toolbox decks, the green-white ones. In vintage decks, Sultite Midrange, Hogak, uh, which is still a deck in that format, uh, unbelievably. Elves in Legacy runs the card, uh, Dark Depths, etc., etc. So, I mean, it does, it does have a, a multi-format uh, play uh, pedigree. And, again, it's not even two years old yet, so uh, a reprint is not due. Uh, it is the kind of thing I could see show up in a secret layer somewhere along the way, but true of a million cards. Yeah. And you know, what I like about it relative to Karn is that it fits well in like, like those green toolbox type decks. Um, if it's not a lot of Marie's call, it's, you know, court of calling or whatever, where, it, you know, you get to play that silver bullet in your main deck. Um, so it's tutorable if you ever run up against somebody who's getting a little feisty with artifacts, whereas Karn is kind of a, feels a little bit more like a, a commitment to playing that strategy because um, they banned the, they banned one half of that combo, didn't they? Or they did something because that Karn was absolutely everywhere for a little while and then it didn't show up anymore. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the artifact was that you went and pulled with Karn. Was it? 
I'm drawing a blank as well, but there was definitely a two card combo. That well, I mean, liquid metal coating is nasty. That's that's the one that turns things into artifacts and lets Karn go to town on them. Yeah, but it was a hard lock. Like they couldn't cast spells. I think. Like period. It's, it's I don't on remember. The, it's on the tip of my tongue, but yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in it. when I remember. Um, yeah, so I like collector you from that that aspect as well. Uh, well, James goes and looks up that Karn combo piece. Uh, I'm gonna wrap up here with Skyline Despot, um, non foils, uh, which is a rare. Hmm. Is what yeah. I just Mycosynth Lattice. Mycosynth Lattice. And is that is that banned? Did they ban it? I swear they did. Yeah, it is banned in modern. Yeah. Because I say there's no reason why that deck was absolutely everywhere and then suddenly disappeared. Um. Yeah, Skyline Despot is the dragon from Conspiracy 2. And uh, he's a 7 mana 5 5. When he enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. And at the beginning of your upkeep, if you are the monarch, you put a 5 5 dragon into play. Um, importantly, he is a dragon with a come into play effect. And that's useful for, again, Magda, who is the dwarf, the new dwarf legendary creature. Um, she makes treasure tokens when you tap dwarves, but then you can sacrifice five treasures to go search for an artifact or a dragon and put that onto the battlefield. So Skyline Despot seems like it's a pretty reasonable dragon target because it's going to give you some value right away in becoming the monarch. This isn't enough um what's interesting here is that there are like no copies of skyline despot left this is from conspiracy 2 was rare in that set uh not a mythic notably um but there are a grand total of uh 10 vendors on tcg with um copies of skyline despot available one of them is a chinese card uh, one of them is a foil at $25, and it's the only foil on here. Uh, two of them are at 20 bucks. one's at 18 There's really only about six or seven copies below $15, uh, with the cheapest at 13 So with so few copies, it's going to take, like, what, four people to decide they want some Skyline Despots for their Magda deck, and the TCG inventory is just gone. Um, so it's only in about three and a half thousand EDH rec decks. It doesn't have a huge play pattern, but I do think people playing Magda are probably going to look to that card, especially since if you're playing Magda as your commander, it's mono red, which means you it cuts off a lot of the other dragon avenues. Um, so based on how few copies of there are there are of this on the market, uh, you know you can get these at twelve. I think these could be thirty dollars in two months, three months, honestly. Now I wouldn't go super deep. I would be worried about reprints somewhere along the line here, um, but it would have to be someplace they can put Monarch, which limits it a little bit. The list is probably the most likely place to see it. However, we've already kind of agreed that the list doesn't really bug us that much. It doesn't seem to put enough inventory in the market to sway it. Now, if we're talking about a card like Skyline Despot, where part of the value is that it's fairly rare uh, in, re in relation to you know a, a standard card, which has a lot more copies floating around, the list could have more of an impact because it might be more copies relative to the existing print run then than something else. In any case, I think uh, you know I would be happy to be in for a playset or so um, around twelve or thirteen dollars and looking to flip those probably come the spring. Yeah, I mean, no reprint, single printing, relatively Skyline popular Despot. card, Skyline Despot. <laughs> 
all very solid picks. Uh, and this one I was surprised by. We get a lot of picks from Pro Trader members on a week to week basis when we call out for them in the Discord that are either things we've already picked before or that somebody else has picked before um, or that doesn't quite meet the standards in terms of uh, what makes sense. And then there's usually a handful or a double handful of some very solid picks. Um, and it's a kind of can be tricky to figure out which one to grab. This one I almost rejected out of hand because I was certain that one of us must have called it out uh, mid-late summer, but apparently not. I, I know that this was a pro trader group buy target multiple times, and I know that we picked <laughs> them up at very good prices, but I, I want to say it was 11 or 12 US for the foil extended arts early on in Europe. Um, the card is Mangara the Diplomat out of core 21 um the card is in north america at about 16 dollars. not any cheaper in europe anymore because copies have been hollowed out in anticipation of the card taking off because you guys uh, bought them all <laughs> well i mean us and others for sure um i mean we even if we do two or three buys on something that's still a fraction of the inventory in europe overall but people have been draining it out because the card is is very good and white needs all the help it can get in edh so basically, the, the price isn't any better anywhere else, um, and the inventory is not particularly deep. It's in 4,000 decks on EDH rack so far. That's 11% of all white decks since it was revealed, and that's actually 500 more decks, uh, as point, pointed out by uh, Discord member Rayux. Uh 500 more decks than one of my uh, darlings of late, Fiery Emancipation. So... If the card is better or more popular than Fire Emancipation, and Fire Emancipation foil extended arts are already above 30, then it makes very little sense that these are lying around at 15. Yeah, uh, I would agree. The card is very potent. People were excited when it was spoiled as being uh, a very capable card, and White is always happy to have the additional tools. Uh, it seems like it's going to be... A very common 99 card which is definitely where you want to be on stuff like this because you're going to sell a lot more of these as is a lot more of a card that's an inclusion in the main deck than as a commander generally um yeah I mean, you'll notice that as a trend in our picks that we like the cards in the deck more than the commanders themselves necessarily but uh yeah i mean what are, these are what the this is this is the extended art foil right correct yeah this for 16, sure. Now, the drop, unlike Commander Legends, the drop rates for foil extended arts are in Core 21 are the highest of any of the collector boosters. But it's still not very high, as evidenced by how quickly these have drained out. I mean, this is set isn't even six months old, and already the best of the foil extended arts are, you know, poof, disappearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because even, even if the drop rates were really high, that might have been done when designing the formulation as a response to the overall lower sales of summer sets. Wizards may have been thinking, maybe we want to put a little bit more of these in the collector boosters because there may not the, the collector boosters may not sell all that well. Or they may have just been juicing it because they wanted to change that reality. Um, keep in mind, this is also the set where they did like 74 different versions of Teferi, Master of Time. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, overall, I like the pick. Um, I actually was doing some shopping elsewhere and saw this on our list and threw a copy or two in the my cart. So I don't say that about 
listener picks too often, but I did this time. All right. So congratulations to Rayux for winning the $25 gift certificate with Cool Stuff Inc. With Mangara the Diplomat. There you go. <laughs> all right so that sends us over to uh segment four our topic of the week column spoilers have started and we actually don't have quite as many as i was expecting to have by now they're slow rolling this a little bit right like we've got i don't know what 15 cards or something like that it doesn't seem like that much it's because the set doesn't actually come out till the end of january not the beginning of january it's a week or two later than theros was last year oh yeah so we're getting a bit of a a longer runway on the spoilers here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, I would say the big ones here is we got Halvar, God of Battle, who is a new type of flip card. He's a, he's a new god, um, but he doesn't have the same conditions as we're familiar with with the other gods from Theros. Um, he's just a creature. As soon as he comes into play, he's not indestructible. He has no protection against malarkey, um, but he flips into equipment which is definitely a, a newer thing for us. Well, he doesn't flip into equipment because or it's he, not it's not like a JVP thing where you put him into play and then there's a trigger and he flips. This is a pick one or the other. Either you play him as the god side or you play him as the equipment side. Sure, yes. Which is, which is interesting because both sides, the equipment and the god, are both legendary. So if you wanted to play a high degree of uh, reliability in terms of the deck construction, say for standard or whatever other constructed uh, format, you are going to at least be able to consider running you know, up to the full four copies because if you've got the god version in play, you can then play Sword of the Realms, the flip side, and they have synergies between e- each other. So Halvar is a 4-4. Creatures you control that are enchanted or equipped have double strike. At the beginning of each combat, you may attach target aura or equipment attached to a creature you control to target creature you control. So you can move your equipment around for free once at the start of each combat. And his flip side is Sword of the Realms, which is equipped creature gets plus 2, plus 0, and has vigilance. Whenever equipped creature dies, return it to its owner's hand. So if you play Halvar and then play another Halvar on the sword side, then equip one to the other and then Halvar dies, you get to put him back in your hand. So he has, like, ridiculous energy with himself. Yeah, and the sword, you know, presumably they killed the creature, not the sword. The sword, the creature comes back, the sword sits in play, and you're back to where you started. You know, Halvar, the sword returns Halvar, the creature, and it's a, a nice little redundancy there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, overall, I, I, think that, I think this card is less sexy than the Theros God's. Uh, have been in the past i think the original gods i think were the most interesting ones I, then the return ones w- didn't seem to have as much traction also notably didn't seem to have a lot of a lasting appeal in being a god people didn't seem to like care about that that much in the way that they care about you know angels or whatever um halvar is not a big exciting splashy looking card uh but what he is is looking very constructed playable I can definitely see Dax playing for uh, Halvars. You know, does won't take very much equipment to give your creature. You know, Double Strike is a pretty potent ability, and being able to toss some of that around is uh, a real deal. And I mean, you can play like I can see people playing. You know, the one mana dirt cheap equipment. You know, equips for one and gives the equipped creature plus one plus zero type deal in their decks because it's very cheap and easy to move around and then you slam a halvar and you're you know grow gunch the five six green creature 
with a bunch of keyword soup that has the one O equipment attached to them, all of a sudden has double strike. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> we're more interested in the double, the, the hidden and double strike text on that equipment than we were on any of the other text on it. Um, so I think that bodes well for him in that regard. And he just seems like he's costed to be pretty competitive. And again, like you said, you can play four copies of Helvar because of the ability to play the other half of him. Um, you know, the worst case scenario is now you have Halvar the creature and Halvar the sword in play and you draw a third Halvar. But let me say that that seems like a, a problem you're happy to have, right? Like if you've got both of those going at the same time, it uh, feels like a win more situation. So uh, I, overall, I think you've got a card that's not going to look as exciting on the surface, but might have a significance in standard. And with Magda, maybe there's some red, white dwarves deck that has Halvar at the top end. Yeah, possibly. She seems like she'd probably be a tad slow. Um, can you search for him with Magda? Magda, sacrifice five treasures, search your library for an artifact, you know, blah, blah, blah. But search your library for an artifact card. But is he, does he count as an artifact in your deck? I didn't think he did, right? My, my guess is no. Yeah. I wouldn't expect as much. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. What out of these... Just like, just like you can't search up the mythic uh, DFCs from uh, Zendikar Rising as lands. Right, 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 right. Uh, but, but I think you can, you can return them with Crucible... Uh, there was some there was some funniness, but it was from the graveyard, not from the deck. Mm, yeah, that makes sense, sort of. So moving right along, we've got Realm Walker revealed this week. I believe this is the buy a box card for the set. This one is going to be a gainer. <laughs> there should be a bunch of these around because it's a bab. Um, there should be a foil extended art version, probably in the collector boosters. That one will be the one to watch. Uh, two and a green for a two-three shapeshifter. So we're getting changelings in this set, and that's relevant because we have party mechanics and Zendikar Rising that didn't seem all that sexy. But if you've got a bunch of playable changelings in standard, then that could easily be a thing. Uh, as Realmwalker enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. You may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may cast creature spells of the chosen type from the top of your library. So you can. If you have whatever tribe and you're playing green in EDH, you now have a play off the top of your library effect. Yeah, he is pretty potent and should make its way into lots of casual oriented decks here. Um, yeah, I think, you know, tribal EDH decks are whatever, but anyone who's playing one will be inclined to put this in there. Right, like it's open and it's an open-ended synergy card that fits into so like it, it's not a goblin card. It's a all the green tribes card. Yeah, exactly. Which is a much bigger deal. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm never going to be like if you're playing a, a tribal deck and it's got green in it. It's going to be hard to make the case that this shouldn't be in it. Yep. All right. The, the only other big reveal this week officially was Serolf Realm Eater. I, I knew we were going to get some kind of Fenrir wolf thing here that seemed go without saying and it's a pretty good one three three for a, for one green black whenever a permanent and opponent controls is put into a graveyard from the battlefield put a plus one plus one counter on several realm eater realm eater at the beginning of your upkeep if serolf has one or more plus one plus one counters on it you may remove all of them if you do 
Exile each other non-land permanent with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of counters removed this way. So you want to get rid of everything, three casting costs or less. You got to have three counters on Sorolf. Uh, at the beginning of your upkeep, you can remove them. Uh, Sorolf gets smaller, but doesn't go away. And everything else, three or less, gets exiled. Yeah, I'm. I'll be honest. Like I don't really care about this card. Um, there's a. I feel like there's just a lot of effects that do something in the similar space. I don't think he's compelling as a commander. I think he's fine as a 99 inclusion, but like, who cares? In, in creature counter decks, he he and a million other creatures will definitely make the cut. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm not wowed by him, but he's fine. I don't know. I think yeah. he's. There's a lot of like mediocre green creatures essentially. Um, I, I do. We also got. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You've got a final comment on Sorolf. Oh no, not on Sorolf. Let's going to move on and talk about the lands. Uh, well, I mean, we we knew these lands were coming. We got Hennigate Pathway, Blightstep Pathway, Dark Boray, and Bark Channel Pathway. So that's white, blue, red, black, green, black, and blue, green. The four remaining pathways and the confirmation that these are not snow related in any way that the ultimate uh secret layer number two is the pathways we now know about all kind of fairly obvious and straightforward i don't remember did we know of these last week yes well, we knew that we knew they were coming. We didn't may not have known their names. Okay, because I remember we had talked. You were were wondering if they're going to be sh- snow or not. Yeah, but so they're not. Well, not not that I ever thought they were snow. I I definitely wondered aloud <laughs> yes. whether whether they would dare to make these different than the previous six. The answer was no. <laughs> right, right, right. But which, and well, and rumor has it that it's the common land cycle that and the basics that are snow as opposed to these. Yeah, which uh, which is you know I think is fine, um, and what I would expect anyways. Granted, keep in mind by the way that we have on Mythic spoiler at the moment only eleven revealed cards, um, so there's not uh, and except for the oh I guess oh there's the theme and booster set cards too that were that showed up, so there's a couple extra cards in there. That's where all the other I thought there was more that we had seen. I couldn't remember what it was. Um, but my point being is that we haven't seen that many cards. So even though we haven't seen snow, that doesn't mean snow is not in it. And I, it, it this, you know, thinking about snow, it's odd to me that they wouldn't include it in Kaldheim because they have this whole thing about like play, managing player expectations and giving them, you know, meeting people's expectations <clears> and. <throat> not setting you up to expect to expect something and then not get it and feel like you have the rug pulled out from underneath you. Um, the legendary werewolf commander not showing up in whatever that was uh, return the Innistrad or whatever stands out as one of them because everyone was like, Oh yeah, of course there's going to be like a legendary werewolf commander in this set. And there just wasn't. Um, so to have Kaldheim and the, the whole essence of it is this very wintry, snowy, nordic plane and then to just not have like the snow permanence the snow type cards which you we just saw in modern rises not that long ago kind of felt like a setup for it 
does seem like it would be violating an expectation that was very much established for the players. I feel like if they weren't going to do snow and call time, they would have had the lead with that information. They would have been like, we're going to call time. No, there's no snow in it. Knowing damn well that everyone would expect it and rumor it if they weren't going to have it. If they didn't clarify, I should say. The thing is that we don't have any clear signals that it doesn't include snow. And all the rumors are about snow. And the setup here, where the things that are probably snowy are conspicuously absent from the reveals thus far, just looks like they're sandbagging snow. Now, yeah. yeah. oddly enough, that's not even the most controversial inclusion. <laughs> because, as we mentioned at the top True. of the cast, somebody popped up on Facebook today claiming that they opened Kaldheim cards in a pack of Commander Legends. Which, if you're trying to obfuscate where you're getting your sneaky cards from, that's a good story to tell. Yeah. But it's tri- but it's tricksy. It's not the because, first time I've heard that either. Yeah, and you know we've there have been other guerrilla marketing smelling tactics over the last few years where it seemed very much like you know, little Easter eggs that Wizards was tossing out there to either shift uh, conversations in the magic community or just going about the usual, you know, here some of my budget is for guerrilla marketing and here's the sneaky things I'm going to do that are relatively straightforward. So it's hard to tell whether this is, you know, somebody that stole cards off the shop floor as we saw with Commander Legends and is just telling a story to, you know, mask what really happened or something that Wizards made a, you know, a legit mistake on at the factory and put the, the wrong cards uh, in a Commander Legends pack, or if it was intentional. Bottom line, doesn't really matter. What matters is, are these cards for real? Because the two things that we saw uh, so far, one was a Snow Sorcery that puts uh, plus one, plus one counters on your creatures equal to the amount of snow mana that was used. And the other was, believe it or not, a new version of Vorinclex, the Phyrexian Praetor, last seen on Phyrexia. That's... Well, uh, new, new Phyrexia. Yeah, that is a big, a big meatball to be hanging out there, especially if that is real and Wizards had that, that spoiler leak. That is like, probably would be the biggest reveal of the set. And we and to be clear, we won't handle this kind of a rumor unless it's already clearly out there. Yeah. And given that this is already being passed around on Facebook, the cat is definitely out of the bag. And I'm sure it's on Reddit by now and passing around Twitter and, you know, it's it's out there. Yeah, so I found it on Reddit. The the question is, is this real? Like does it make sense that Phyrexians would be on Cal time? I mean, there's been an expectation for quite some time now that eventually we are going to revisit the Phyrexians and they will probably be invading somewhere new. Um, does Kaldheim make sense as a place that they would invade? It's as good as any, I suppose. And before cast, Travis was pointing out, well, we don't stay on a plane for more than one set anymore. So if you want to do a big invasion narrative... It's going to have to be across multiple sets, which means it's across multiple planes, which means that you don't necessarily need to encounter Kaldheim post-Phyrexian invasion. It could be very early 
in the infiltration of Kell Time, where there are some there's a small Phyrexian teaser sub theme, which is then driven home in subsequent sets and wraps up a year from now or something. Yeah, I could see, yeah, and I was saying, you know, if this played out for Wizards timeline, you can see them revealing virtually every card in the set and people going, Well, where's the last green mythic? And they've kind of built this story and then they go, Oh yeah here are the last three cards we haven't spoiled yet. Whoa. Turns out they made it to Kaldheim, but our hero planeswalkers have actually, you know, at the, at the end of the Kaldheim story have actually left the plane and they just cut, you know, they didn't see them on the way out or something like that. So it kind of lets you know that there's something happening with them without uh, it having to become a major part of the story. I, I, I think it's, um, it's interesting to consider them coming back here, I, I some of the the our Discord was chatting about this, and there was a thought that introducing Phyrexians to this plane would be mechanically way too complex to try and mix Phyrexian mechanics with all of the stuff that you already see. Well, and to, to mix it with snow. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because essentially Phyrexians carry all their own mechanical baggage. You have, in fact, you have Phyrexian mana, which is probably not going to make a comeback, given that like they banned every single one of those cards. It wasn't pure limited fodder um, in every format. You've also, so you have like the poison counters, um, the Phyrexian mana. There was another big one that escapes me but like it, it feels like you have to dedicate half of your sets mechanics to the phyrexians essentially and then to try and add that to a set that's already going to have a lot of its own identity that it's trying to carve out like snow and what have you it does seem like you've got a just you know what is it um too, essentially too much of a good thing so it seems weird I, to try and combine both of those i definitely agree that i, I don't think phyrexian mana is back if there is a Phyrexian-specific mechanic other than Infect. And keep in mind that Marrow... Somebody pointed out in our Discord that on the blogatog, Marrow's blog, um, he confirmed to somebody that you could kill people in Caltime Limited with poison counters. So that could that could easily be a red herring, or it could be a signal that Infect is, in fact, on a bunch of the Phyrexian creatures. Yeah, I, I, I so somebody else pointed that, and I find that like a little questionable... Because to me, what that means is someone said, can you kill somebody in uh, Kaldheim Limited with Infect? And, or is it, and Rosewater said like, yes, you can. But you could, you know, knowing Rosewater, you'd be saying like, yeah, you can legally kill people with Infect in Kaldheim Limited. Why wouldn't you be able to? Of course, there's nothing with Infect in Kaldheim Limited. But like in fact is still legally part of the game so yes it's it's out there i don't know that's that is how i read that honestly also if you believe that this vorinclex is real it doesn't have any phyrexian mana in its casting cost but neither did the original predators yeah it wasn't like a thing back then uh, or i should say it wasn't on every card so it's not that big of a deal if it's if this doesn't have it i i would imagine there is some tweaked phyrexian mechanic we know that uh officially spoiled uh, we have the doo, 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 doo. Renard the Ever Watchful talks about a uh, mechanic called Fortel. So we we suspect Fortel is one of the three uh, fresh mechanics. And 
It could be foretell in fact and snow. I suppose. Um, maybe if they decide that they, you know, they didn't want to give Kaldheim all of its own space and they're okay with sort of diluting that set a little bit to include identities from another plane already. Mm-hmm. Um, worth noting too, that the, the, the other card that was spoiled uh, other than just Warren clocks shows uh, a new border treatment, essentially with some like snowy frost around the green border which it would be a considerable amount of effort for somebody just making this up as they go. Like if you were trying to fool people, like that is an additional layer of effort that is frankly impressive. Whenever I see cards like this now, or really any strange rumor, I immediately do a reality check as to whether I'm getting busted by still carry. <laughs> so I was, I was going over these images with a fine tooth comb being like, what, how much of this is believable? And there are some interesting choices here, but it's believable. Now, I'm curious whether it will turn out that these cards are Avril, B, whether they were among the cards that were handed out to content creators. Because one of the things that would signal intentional versus erroneous would be whether there was overlap. If it turns out that Vorinclex is real and that's LSV's spoiler, <laughs> pretty good chance that Wizards was not looking to biff themselves in the nuts by double revealing the card. But if nobody got that card to reveal, or if it was revealed very late in the game, you know, from Wizards as opposed to from a content creator, then that might signal the other direction. Mm-hmm. So. I, I mean, I don't have the answer at this point, but I do think it's interesting uh, that that could be in the pipeline. And I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean for us either at this point. I'll, I'll uh, tell you, I haven't heard anything Phyrexian related in the rumor mill at all. There's been plenty of rumors about Kaldheim along the way, all of them very vague and you know nonspecific. And nothing, no one ever said to me, oh, hey, did you hear about like Phyrexians on Kaldheim. Not even close. So, hmm. and I, when I saw this stuff earlier today with everybody else, I ran it up the flagpole to various contacts here and there. You know, what do you think of this? Does this seem real to you? And people had no more clue than us. Interesting. At least that they were willing to admit to. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's kind of funny that we're like, oh, it's hard to believe this is real. Cause wizards is so bad at keeping secrets. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, like, it's possible. Well, like, I've, I've been just... waiting with bated breath for the, you know, the spoilers to get spoiled. Like, I was 0% surprised that some cards were posted to Facebook. Yes. Um, you know, a month earlier than may, per, per, perhaps intended. But it will be interesting in the next couple of weeks to see how this develops because there, there was already a lot thematically to Kaldheim as a concept. Mm-hmm. Just digging into the Viking lore for the first time in Magic's narrative is, in a, and especially knowing that you're only getting a single set to introduce it and wrap it all up, yeah, um, means they had. I think they had plenty to chew on already. That <laughs> if they got halfway through that and they were like, you know what, we've got all the Norse gods and the y- Yggdrasil and Fenrir and the World Serpent, you may as well just throw the Phyrexians in there. 
Yeah, it it does seem if they had said that it was two sets, right? Like, oh yeah, this is going to be a two set block, and you'd be like, huh, okay. Like, I'm I'm kind of surprised there's enough content to chew on in you know in Magic's modern design stage uh, to warrant two sets. Then it would make a lot more sense, right? Because you'd be like, oh okay, uh, like we're gonna set up call time, do all the tropes, toss a couple more in the second set, and then that's when the Phyrexians hit. But to just do it in one set is like it's barely enough room to hit all of your your tropes that you want to to begin with. And it's interesting because if this concept had started in, say, Zendikar Rising, and then there seemed to be signals that each of the subsequent planes we were visiting were all going to be invaded by, like, a different Phyrexian Praetor or something, that would be a cool setup if it led to, for instance, Modern Horizons 2, and Modern Horizons 2 was called something like Modern Horizons 2 Phyrexians versus the Multiverse. You know what I'm saying? Like, you could, you could then culminate in a premium set that has $240 boxes and add some juice to your sales cycle mm-hmm. um, and use that kind of Avengers versus Thanos level event to justify the power level of the cards in said same set. Um, so th- it doesn't seem like that's where they're headed, but if I was on the market, the product development team, that's one of the things I would be at least considering. The The other thing that we talked about off cast that's worth mentioning is if they're not doing any of that, but they yeah. are doing like following this up with some of the other sets that we know about in the pipeline, we know that there's a double set for Innistrad in the fall. That's kind of weird. Um, because from my perspective, aesthetically, thematically, Innistrad is a very strange place to have Phyrexians attacking because it's already a dark and nasty place. So... <laughs> Dark and nasty to dark and nasty plus some black oil slicks is not such a dramatic change. Oh no, the vampires have been replaced with like Borg vampires. Um, doesn't do the same thing for me as, for instance, say Strixhaven, you know, utopian Hogwarts now under attack by horrors of unknown imagining. Yeah, it's undoubt like yeah it's like if you look at the timeline you go okay well for axioms we're going to show up within the next year what are our options well clearly it's not called time um i have real difficulty believing they would do it in the D set no definitely yeah, like not. that just that just feels like a non-starter to they, they already like confirmed this... that the D set does not uh put D in the magic lore universe okay which makes sense i because it's it's more of a D inspired set right It'll be like, just a straight D and D set. Like it's going to be D and D lore and no magic lore. To the point where I, to the point where I, I'm actually curious how they're going to handle, like references to mana and so forth. Wait, I thought you just said they're not putting D and D into magic, like the. Yeah, yeah, but it's the reverse. The D and D set is fully a D and D set using all the D and D lore, magical logic, etc. So oh. it's it's. It's still, I think, standard legal, as far as I know, but it is because it replaces the core set. There's no core set next summer, but it does not, it's not like there's going to be Planeswalkers hang, like, it's not, it's not Jace go, visits Greyhawk or Jace gotcha. visits Faerun. It's just going to be D&D characters. In fact, I'm not, so, I, I, I'm questioning whether there will be any Planeswalkers in the set at all. Um, yeah. 
because the, I mean, the, that kind of character doesn't exist unless they want to do something like take the there are some famous wizards and witches and stuff that uh popular handbooks are named after like the most recent one this month was tasha's cauldron of everything they could take tasha is like baba yaga's stepchild or whatever um they could take that character and make it a planeswalker and it would be cute yeah okay so that so just to be clear there the D magic set will have no magic the gathering lore characters or anything so it far as we know magic the gathering as a structure for a game that now has all of the D official D storyline lore and characters in it with no intention of a crossover in, in the same sense that if they did a Star Wars magic set, there would be no yeah. expectation that the Death Star would be fighting Jace. Yeah, okay. No, that makes sense, I suppose. And I can see that, given that it's replacing a core set. I also don't think of that as being a real infringement on the concept of magic, because D&D is just so closely aligned in general aesthetic anyways. It's almost just like it's its own plane. I mean, um, Do- Dominaria was o- originally already a, basically a ripoff of Faerun, the yeah. the the you know core D and D world. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, in any case, very unlikely to see Phyrexians there for a variety of reasons, um, which basically in this year leaves Kaldheim and Innistrad and. Innistrad getting the two sats does seem like it might be the place that you would see Phyrexians. Of course, like, so you have completed Eldrazi. I don't know. That just seems like, honestly, it just seems like a mess. It does give them an opportunity to combine the two big bad threats. Like, oh, well, you know, Karn's around and he obliterated the Phyrexian influence from his heart and... Uh, you know, we're less concerned about the Phyrexians because of him. And the Planeswalkers and the Gatewatch kicked off out the Eldrazi, the big Eldrazi, three Eldrazi. So the two, Eldrazi have been Two here. Eldrazi. Two Eldrazi. Well, we're, what happened to the third one? Ugin, or Emrakul's in the moon, right? A- Emrakul withdrew herself, saying that it was not the right time. Which one is the one trapped in the moon? El- it's it's um, Emrakul, but she didn't get defeated. She was actually kicking their ass. She she realized halfway through the battle that she wasn't supposed to be there. It was the wrong time, and she withdrew to the moon. Really? Yep. They never beat her. Uh, this okay. This uh, imprisoned in the moon. Only one vault was great enough to hold Emrakul. Yeah, yeah. This she's sh- she's she's in the moon, but she went there of her own accord. <laughs> imprisoned That's... is imprisoned is is a is a misleading way of referring to it. That's for sure. This is stupid. That's stupid. Is that seriously what they did? Yep. In, in the battle, damn sense. in the battle, she was absolutely ass whooping the Gatewatch, and they, Tamio refused to fight and was observing and had figured out in communing, managed in communing with Emrakul to help her understand to come to the realization, I believe, that she was not in the right place at the right time. Because Emrakul had been drawn to uh, Innistrad by Nahiri as revenge on Sorin for not showing up to defend Zendikar. 
So Nahiri set up this huge ley line network or whatever with the Hedrons to attract Emrakul. So Emrakul came expecting to find something she was supposed to be fixing. Because there's this whole like secretive backstory of the Eldrazi as though they are kind of, they are meant to clean up problems in the universe. It's, 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 yeah, I gotcha. It's like, oh, we're the ultimate solution to the greatest problem the universe has ever faced. And it turns out the problem is sentient life. Yeah, or something like that. So anyway, Emrakul is not defeated. She was, she withdrew to the moon and the, the suggestion was that one day she'll be back. Okay. So That's whether, all... whether or not she's coming back this fall on Innistrad, I have no idea. That's um, all in- but I could, stupid. I could see a, a, the kind of person that loves really overly complicated plot lines, of which there are many in the fantasy uh, industry, being into the premise of the Firexians finding out about Emrakul and trying to complete her. That sounds like some anime crap. I don't know. I find that very uninteresting yeah. because the, I'm going to I'm gonna work a bit of a divergence here, but for the Star Trek fans out there, um, the Borg were introduced in The Next Generation. That was one with uh, Patrick Stewart playing Captain Picard. And what made the Borg so interesting as an enemy is they were uh, essentially of a of a completely different type than anything that humans had encountered before. They could not be reasoned with. They could not be bargained with. There was no figurehead with which to debate or engage in diplomacy. They were essentially a force of nature. And that made them terrifying. Because you could not do anything to dissuade them. And that's what made them such a cool villain. And then, of course, like the movie, I think, introduced a Borg Queen or something like that. And it was stupid as hell and um, ruined the entire design of the characters. But it was really cool to have this this very pure enemy, which stood apart from like the Klingons, the Romulans, or, or the Minion, whatever, anything else. So then you take the Eldrazi, which were supposed to be that in magic and again they're cool because it's like you can't you can't trick them and you can't um convince them to go elsewhere you can't communicate with them these things are just eating everything in their path and what the hell do you do and then to just add like oh tamio you know jedi mind tricked emrakul to go hide in the moon because whoops you're not supposed to be here it's just just ugh, just the borg queen all over again how disappointing to just ruin the Eldrazi. Then again, I thought also the Gatewash was just a train wreck from the little bit of story I pulled from it anyways. I hated, you know, Captain Planet's Avengers coming together and high-fiving and destroying the Eldrazi the way they did. Whatever. What a trash set. Um, <laughs> in any case, that leaves us really with Innistrad, Inist- with but it gives them a chance to complete the Eldrazi and combine these two villains who might appear to be at lower power level at this point in time, now it becomes, oh, well, now they're combined and they're even scarier, which is like, I don't know, seems kind of silly and unnecessary, but it's there for them if they want to do it. Here's what uh, a Wikipedia page for Tamiyo has to say, slightly contradicting my version of events. Joining forces with the Gatewatch, Tamiyo was the one who deduced that Emrakul could not be defeated like the other Titans, but had to be sealed. Pointing to the moon as the origin of the Hell Vault, she combined forces with Jace and Nyssa to seal Emrakul away. 
While the spell seemed to fail at first, Tamio took out one of her ironclad scrolls, and the spell succeeded to seal the titan. Afterwards, Gideon approached her and offered her a place in the gatewatch, but she declined, seemingly shaken by the experience. However, I'm pretty sure, having actually read the narrative, that that's not exactly how it goes down. The And stand by my earlier comment that, yeah, they... They help Emmerichul to understand she's in the wrong place. So, I mean, so perhaps it's not convincing Emmerichul she's in the wrong place, but like tricking her into thinking she's in the wrong place type of thing. Like, um, it's not a conscious decision made by Emmerichul, but rather one that she's sort of been inceptioned to believe is her decision. Either way is dumb and bad, but, um, well. It's all neither here nor there. I guess the takeaway here being Innistrad seems like it could be pointing at, at an invasion of the Frexians because of the double set thing and the fact that we've already been to Innistrad twice so far and how much more ground could they have to cover at this rate? But, I, I, I am not a fan of going back to Innistrad. I find it to be one of the most tired and uninteresting of the planes. Yeah. Um, uh, giving it two sets is unbelievable to me. Uh there's definitely a thing inside Wizards where they feel like they need the value of their IP to be multi-stage, that they want to go back to... They, they've identified core planes, and they're going to go back to them every five years or so. And that's fine if the planes are really great. But if you keep giving us hollow shells of planes that barely hang together. Like the world of Innistrad doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The, the premise, the premise of that plane, so many monsters, so much terror. And then these little villages, the humans would have been dead so much, so long ago. I, I really, I, I thought that the initial Innistrad was really quite well done. Um, I thought it was much more engaging than a lot of the other planes and the top-down design resonated. Uh, I mean, obviously resonated really well. You're on, we're about to go back to it for the second time um, for three total Innistrad visits. So clearly that struck a chord with players. I thought the introduction of the Eldrazi was um, unnecessary. I thought it was a much more engaging environment when it essentially played slightly smaller ball. And you had demons and werewolves and the creepy dark fairy tale stuff. And I mean, maybe the well was a little dry if they didn't add some spice, but I thought it worked. Um, it sort of, you know, could have worked narratively and flavorfully, just keeping it kind of contained like that. And adding the Eldrazi just felt like it was not compelling, really. You have a whole plane that's like dark and scary and spooky, and like, oh, now we've added these like horribly otherworldly monsters and it's like how can i really be scared about a werewolf when you have this like thing dragging itself it just seems like a mismatch well basically i understand where what they were going for because from an art direction perspective they were like okay original innistrad is classic horror it's bram stoker's dracula yeah now we're gonna we're gonna add modern horror which is basically body horror cinema yeah uh, lovecraftian stuff yeah there's some lovecraftian but it's a lot of the you know what makes lovecraftian horror so you know creepy is the invasion of your own body by you know the presence of an other a force of the other that you never fully understand that's a big thing in 
you know, Lovecraftian horror, the like never fully understanding, getting a glimpse of the unknown, but not being in a position to fully digest it. And then the madness that results from that. And that was the whole, they ran with all of that uh, when they went back to Innistrad because it was all about like tentacles growing out of your body and then everybody going crazy. And, you know, was there going to be anyone left to fight by the time they got to the battle? Yes. Sorry, was that that sounded like that was all lead up to something. Just to like explain how they got from point A to point B. But now to go to point C and say, okay, now we're going back to Innistrad again and the Phyrexians are involved is a bridge too far from my perspective. I already wasn't a huge fan of either the classic horror or the attempt to introduce body horror in in a more modern sensibility um to that landscape and i i just feel like it's a plane that doesn't need the revisit and but that said i also felt the same way about zendikar because going back to zendikar i thought they were going to do something with that like finally give zendikar some character because they talk about zendikar as being the big uh adventure plane it's like the two like raiders of the lost ark plane where you've got this really cool topography which admittedly is very very cool this whole concept of the floating like crypts in the sky and you've got to like use lines and chains to get from one to the other. And nobody, it's been so long since that ancient civilization was decimated that nobody really knows what's in there and what they're going to find. But they never, they never, you don't really ever have time to get into that deeply or absorb any of that. And likewise, I find that no matter how many times we go back to Innistrad, there's just, it's not there's not very much depth it's just a veneer of known horror tropes splayed out in front of you and they're like look we did all the things that you expected well there were definitely parallels you had two sets that were essentially the two most popular pl- new planes in modern border magic yep. right like I, I uh, unquestionably and then you took each of them and, and like you said it just it became this sort of veneer of of interesting character but they sort of just wiped it all away and i agree i thought the return to zendikar was also lame um compared to the original like they just didn't know how to handle it like they they're like okay well last time was great uh let's try and turn it up to 12 this time but also we turned the wrong parts up to 12 i thought that the Eldrazi on Innistrad would have been better served by invading a different plane. And I think that's kind of more interesting that you could have taken something that was its own existence. And it wasn't about horror and spooky and scary. It was about something completely different, but then you have this unknown madness evolving over in the corner of the world that's unlike anything you've seen there like theros could have been a good set for it it feels like right like it was nothing to do with darkness and 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 spookiness uh or any you know some of these other planes um yeah and zendikar missed the mark because it just failed to deliver on any of the things people associated with zendikar but you know whatever the point being that they failed on both of those returns i guess this is all a very long-winded conversation the point being is uh it does seem like innistrad could be set up for it but clearly we're seeing some indications that there might be frexians on kaladesh i don't know if i love it but it seems like the opportunity is there. Kaldheim. Kaldheim. Yeah, Kaldheim. Kaladesh, Kaldheim. Oh, Kaladesh would also have been kind of an interesting one to see the, to see the Eldrazi invade later on. 
because it's all about artifacts in this future spooky or future world and like there's it's all it's very bright and colorful and um you know not about that at all and to have that impact the plane would have been much more engaging i think whatever uh back on the topic of magic guards i want to point out that i think you mentioned pyre of heroes to me like last week and i brushed it off a little bit as thinking that like a birthing pod for creature types probably isn't good enough but i stopped and looked at it and thought about it a little bit more um it really helps me i don't know about you but i find that it's much easier for me to sort of grok a card when i look at the card like to the point that i would rather read the oracle text on the card itself than in a paragraph next to the card like it's just my brain is just very good at processing the face of a magic card um but when I actually stopped and looked at the card, I realized this Pyre of Heroes is probably a nine or a two. Um, there's either going to be, there's either not going to be a uh, tribe that has enough potency, a single tribe that has enough potency for this to get anywhere, and it will be relatively unimpressive. Or they're going to turn a dial a little too far, and Pyre of Heroes is going to be absurd because the. Price points on Pyro Heroes for two and two are both very competitive. It forces you into one tribe because um, it's a birthing pod for a tribe. And you can only do it as a sorcery. But I don't... Was birthing pod only as a sorcery? Now that I say that a lot. Yes, uh, yes, I yes, think it, it was. was. So like birthing pod was already sorcery speed. And that sure as hell didn't slow that card down. So if you give any one of these tribes just enough, Pyro of Heroes becomes insane. And it's probably a relatively linear deck by nature of that card, but uh, that could be busted in half. Um, and time will tell. But I think that this is this is on my radar as a, a two or a nine, essentially. Well, here's the thing: in EDH, you now have both. Yeah, yeah, but then you're on EDH tribal, which is still like eh. there's, there's lots of EDH tribal decks. Oh, I know there is for sure. But I guess I, I, I don't know. There, I there's some nasty stuff to be done just in ninjas and in, in with ninjas and Yuriko. Yeah, I would think I would think a lot of tribes are probably have, might have trouble playing Pyre of Heroes because it seems like some of the tribes would be kind of flat. Like dragons, I imagine would be kind of flat. Like you wouldn't really want this in dragons because there aren't no. any small dragons to work your way up the chain. That and it seems sense. like most tribes are going to float roughly around the same converted mana cost now the really really big ones humans vampires tribes with a huge number of elves goblins yeah 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 yeah. well even elves right like elves you're going to be at one two and three and you but the well starts to run dry after four but keep in mind it's also wizards warriors etc 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 we just get more and more and more of those over time so this is that classic synergy model where it doesn't it's not as good as Birthing Pod because it's not as flexible overall. So it's limited in where you're going to want to use it. It is a tribal card, clearly. But it's a very open-ended tribal card that's going to work in probably 5, 10, 15, 20 tribes over time. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it could be a real slow burner in that regard. But I could also see it exploding and constructed. Be very um, surprised if we're, this doesn't end up one of my picks as a foil extended art in a couple months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, also, I didn't think Kaya was all that impressive. Kaya and the inexorable. Uh, here, here's a hot take that's not so. That's more lukewarm. Planeswalkers are not good specs. 
<laughs> the, yeah. The, there have been very... The Teferi Master of Time is a busted-ass card in EDH. I've played it in games recently, and it does a lot of work, and they have to kill it, or you just keep getting more and more value. And lots of there's lots of good Planeswalkers, but very few of them are must-haves. And you just have more and more options every year. They give us more Planeswalkers every set, and... Only the really, truly crazy ones that break out in Pioneer Modern level play end up mattering. So you're talking about your three fairies, your five fairies, your, you know, uh, Okos and, and the like. And it's tough to break into those ranks because some of those are very, very good cards indeed. And War of the Spark had so many Planeswalkers <laughs> that they burned a lot of the, like, design equity and it's going to take time to overcome. You got Narset and Nissa and uh, Ashiok, Karn, Ugin, etc. All of which broke into multi-format play. So it makes sense that after that they dialed it back a bit. Yeah, yeah, I agree um, that they are weaker specs than they used to be, especially with how many there are. Um, so I guess when, you know, when we're talking about the spoilers at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm like kind of talking about them from a spec perspective, but more just initial impression, like the power level, just a general power level, the cards, um, and what they might trigger. And I don't know. I just found Kaya on the face to be a little underwhelming five mana, five loyalty, her plus one, like just puts a counter on a creature. So if it dies, you get return it to its owner's hand and you get a one one so like that's fine like it sets up a, a creature it's basically going to return a creature that dies to your hand and replace it with a token but like it doesn't do anything for you right now um her minus three exile permanent is pretty solid but i don't know it seems fine it just seems like kind of a slow grindy value engine but i don't know for, for a five mana planeswalker it just doesn't seem like it, it's doing enough for me to be really interested one of the things that makes them less interesting in the current formulation, product formulation, is that they tend to be, they get the borderless treatment that shows up in regular booster packs and set booster packs. So they're not exclusive to collector boosters ever. And mm -hmm. without, without them, without basically premium cards that you really want your premium cards to be exclusive or hard to find. You know, there, there have been non-foils that have made people money this year. The best, say, top five cards from Jumpstart come to mind. But again, that was because that product had a lot of supply chain problems for six months. Mm -hmm. If that, mm -hmm. if they had not had those problems, those cards would have been plentiful and would just now be drying up. Yeah. Um, by the way, I, I typed this in the Scry Scryfall. Uh, well, you mentioned it. How many sets, sets was the Fairy Master of Time printed in? Not product, not product formulations, not printings, like just sets. Is this a trick question? I, I no, only know of not, one. It's not a trick question. It's not it, right. One. How many variants of Teferi Master of Time are there? 27 or something? 17. 17 different variants of Teferi Master of Time. Yeah. The, the real problem is that the variants aren't different enough to for anyone to give a shit. The, you can't even tell. The, the, borderless, the full art borderless Teferi is very nice and distinctive. The regular one having slightly different colored background graphics is cute, but they didn't stop there. <laughs> so you have 
I mean, they did stop there. No, they they have they have all of that, but they also have there. There's the main Teferi, and then the variants, and then there's the showcase version, which has a slightly different frame. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And and that's the the different frame one is the one I have a problem with because if you want to do the different frame that represents each of the planeswalkers, just do that one. If you had given me the four of the four different variants of that, all of which were, if you want to throw back to a cast four months ago, twenty five percent as um, of the drop rate of a normal mythic. So basically, any one version of those is four times more rare than a mythic, but together they represent a mythic. Plus the borderless, that would have been fine because yeah. then you've got foil, non foil, five versions, ten total. I can live with that. The 17 is crazy talk. It's uh, outrageous. It's, uh, I agree. Like there should have been the normal version should have had a, only had one artwork. Then they should have, they could have had the full art like showcase version. And then if they wanted to do the special border treatment, like, okay, do the special funky border, but then why not make Teferi a different age in each artwork? Right. Or like do something to indicate that like the time changes or whatever. But it's uh, yeah, like doing the different backgrounds, which are almost indistinguishable in so many different versions. It's just unreal. I like to imagine somebody coming to magic like five or six years from now, like new to magic five or six years from now in poking around and looking at all the cards and the various arts and like typing to fairy master time in to one day and then clicking on the see all versions and being like, what the hell happened here? I'm like, what is there? They're going to be calling up their friend who's like into magic. But like, can you explain to me what happened with this card? <laughs> what did, like everything else has like three or four copies and this has 17. What? what? Uh, well, and it would have been one thing if it was say like, Thraferi or like Teferi five cast and cost hero of Dominaria level power, but the card is great in EDH, but no one's talking about it. It's seeing basically zero constructed play. <laughs> so you've got 17 versions of a card that, you know, he fulfills basically a card draw function in, in EDH. You're very like as much as he does work because he gets to activate on everybody's turn, they will eventually kill it. So you're never going to get the ult. So he's, basically just scrying and drawing cards which there are so many replacements for that card in in edh that you don't have to own it at all um so it's just funny like (laughs) it's like here's 17 versions of squire yeah yeah okay let's let's take a second here uh the theme and booster cards so help you you've done more research on this than i did now the set booster card set boosters are the ones that are sort of aligned in one particular avenue and they're more expensive right that's their gimmick yeah so set boosters the plan for wizards is to get everybody off regular booster boxes and get them on set boosters reserve regular booster boxes at a much lower print run as drafts so i think the expectation moving forward is that even when paper resumes they're looking to provide sell more set boosters and regular booster boxes which is what we predicted when it was first announced um where you know the bulk of the drafting of a set happens in the first six weeks after release so the main allocation goes to your local lgs up front they run a bunch of drafts people stop drafting it move on to the next thing and from there on out you know subsequent waves are probably going to be set booster boxes which actually interestingly enough may mean that regular booster boxes from this era could be back on the menu as potential specs 
Because, mm-hmm. and, and the focus there obviously should be on the sets that are very well regarded for drafting. Because if they're excellent to draft and hard to come by, that's what you want to be holding. Yeah. But uh, remains to be seen. So set boosters are 30 boosters instead of 36. And they have a smattering of reprint cards in there. Uh, not enough for it to actually matter. So far, the reprint list is so big and so diverse that a lot of it is trivial cards that aren't worth anything. And then every once in a while, you open a Renan 6 or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, what are the theme boosters? Are those just like the precons? Three theme boosters are things that they put out alongside the release of a set that you can buy at LGS or Walmart or whatever that have a bunch of cards along a certain theme. So they might okay. say, in, in Estrad, you're going to get a werewolf theme booster, and it's going to be a bunch of some new uh, werewolf cards and some old werewolf cards. Okay. Uh, but those are super high priority. They're, yeah, they're like, they're... Because you're buying them in big box. I, I don't know if they're super high print run, but they're they're not going to be anything that's ever worth any money. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to figure out, I'm looking at just Mystic Spoiler here, and I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to differentiate. Because this is Steam and Set Booster cards. Does that mean that the Set Booster cards are also... No, the... not necessarily. You have to go to the Wizard site and look in the collecting cow time article or whatever and look which of these are associated with each Uh, thank you for making this damn near impossible all right so So for instance like looking over this list something like a canopy tactician three three kill precisely the card i was looking at here yeah other elves you control get plus one plus one and it taps for three green that fits into a lot of elf decks in edh so if these end up not getting heavily opened by anybody these could be end up being worth you know more money than you'd expect down the road. Well, that's where I'm going with this. Is if the canopy tactician is showing up in these theme boosters, which you can buy at Target and Walmart, there's probably there's probably going to be a lot of them on the shelves. I guess if they're only if they're rare in the set boosters, it seems like they, assuming the print run is roughly what I would anticipate, then they would be a lot less common, I think, and would set up something like canopy tactician to be very potent. Um, because I can see that being quite popular, not Canopy Tactician specifically, not only in various EDH formulations, but um, kitchen tables. That card seems like it'd be huge at kitchen tables, right? Like every, who was playing an elf deck that at, at, a, at a kitchen table that doesn't want an elf lord like this that also taps for three green? That's so much mana to tap for, right? That seems real good. I also so- think, oh, go ahead. It, tur- it turns out your your question is accurate. In the case of Kaldheim, all of these cards, numbered 374 to 393, are in both set and theme boosters. But they are okay. all... Uh, yeah, suffice to say. They, they do appear in both. And there's going to be a lot more set boosters opened than theme boosters overall. Because they're... What I'm hearing is that it's going to be hard to get Kaldheim product, period. And especially for regular booster boxes and collector booster boxes. So I still am not clear then on the difference between a set booster and a theme booster. Like A, a theme booster is literally a booster that's called Giants. And it's, just, it's like 30 cards and they're all giant cards. A, set, a set booster box is a, is a booster box. It's got 30 packs in it. and It's got mostly new Caltime cards. But it's going to have a slot that can have one of these or one of the reprints or whatever. So is a set booster, is a 
sorry, a theme booster, essentially just like two or three set boosters glued together? No, 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 no. A, a, a set booster is a, a, a box full of Caltime booster packs that have a couple of oddball slots. So it's a modified booster pack. Okay, so a set booster is a the normal Caldheim set pack. No normal Caldheim pack, but has the option, the ability to open a couple other extra cards. It has slots that will include. I think they said. I'm pretty sure that set boosters always have a reprint that like the list slot. And the only question is, is it any good? Because you can open a bunch of trash in that slot. And it okay. sounds like they, they added a new sl- uh, slot in those boosters that will include stuff that would previously have only been in the theme boosters. So are they, are they 17 card packs? Mm, no. They are... Do they drop two commons? Probably something like that. But I'm not, I'm not sure if, it, if they even adhered to 15 card packs. Um, okay. We covered that. We covered that back down the road. But I set boosters have ended up being so irrelevant <laughs> that, that I haven't opened any of them. Um, so I have no personal experience I, with that. And okay. And then a theme a theme booster is just is what you said thirty cards, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's all. So it's just and it's all like this is every card in here is essentially themed for giants or angels or berserkers or whatever. Okay. I mean, that makes sense to me now. That still leaves me wondering what the supply ends up looking at, like, for something like Canopy Tactician, which seems like it would be very popular among a casual crowd if it doesn't get, like, six weird printings. Um, Also, Certland Elementalist, by the way, uh, also curious, could be an EDH, popular EDH card. It's a 7-mana 8-8 giant. Um, You have to... When you play it, either it's the old Lorwyn tax of reveal a giant or pay two extra. So if you're paying the iron price on certain elementalists, it's nine mana for an 8-8. But when it attacks, you cast an instant or sorcery from your hand for free. So turning him sideways once can be a pretty big deal. I'd be Um, way more into this card if it at least had that ability when it came into the battleground. I agree. Uh, And it's not that it's an exceptionally powerful card, but it, you know, combined with a lower print run, it could end up being pretty tempting. I, I suspect it's not going to be a big enough deal. The set boosters are apparently 12 cards. Uh, 14 cards total, but 12 of them are magic cards. One of them is an art card, and one of them is a token. Okay. So in Zendikar Rising, you had a land slot, connected commons and uncommon slot, the head turner slot, the wild card rarity slot, oh the rare God. the rare mythic slot, and the foil slot. I know, we, did, we covered this on cast at the time, and we were just laughing our asses off. At how they thought this was supposed to explain things. And in fact, it's just a mess of terminology. They talk about, like, I I do remember discussing all of this. And I haven't thought about it quite obviously for a single second since we had that conversation. And hearing it all over again is just whoever's in charge of their product formulation should be dragged out into the street and shot. Like, what are you doing? Like, if you want to make it this difficult to understand what's going on sell people solid black sealed packs and just refuse to tell them what's in them <laughs> you walk you should walk in your lgs there is a solid black box on the shelf and you go you can either pay two dollars a pack or four dollars a pack or seventy dollars a pack i'm not telling you what's in anything nothing has a name just give me your money you slobbering idiot 
and let children fork over their hard-earned chore money, take advantage of them with your borderline gambling, and get it over with. Because this is madness. Rampage of the Valkyries seems pretty good. It's another... Uh, oh, but it's only when an angel you control dies. Yeah. Mediocre. So worth pointing That's... out that the, they've confirmed in the WPN uh, promo... Uh, press release site for the WPN network that the list will change subtly from set to set with some cards being swapped out for others that better fit a set's themes. So, Mm -hmm. which is basically what we predicted that it was going to probably not be a hundred percent swap out. It was going to be some kind of like subtle shifting. So you're probably still going to have run and six on on the list. I haven't looked at the full list for Caldheim yet, but uh, in detail, but I know there wasn't any, our Discord kind of dissected it the second it was released and figured out there wasn't really <laughs> anything major to report on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing the list update, but I don't know. It just it, There's so many cards on there. It just doesn't seem like it's a significant consideration. Yeah. Um, so Caldheim starts sales officially on February 5th. Okay. So a little ways away. All right. Yeah, well, February 5th. Wow. We're over uh, a month away, like six weeks. Um. All right, well, I think we have complained enough about Wizards at the moment. Uh, Any other last thoughts for the week, James? Nope, I'm good. Uh, Next week we will have our end-of-year wrap-up, which will be the big wins and big losses of our hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of picks. Um, And uh, (laughs) it's going to be an interesting roundup. Pretty much anything that was premium and EDH related probably did pretty well. (laughs) And any of your constructed specs that we called from, I don't know, October to February probably haven't gone anywhere. Uh, Yeah. And any pick that I had that didn't do well was because of Pioneer and COVID. And COVID. Uh, And everything that did well was my supreme insight. Um, all right, where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me online at Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as my constant haunting of the MTG Price Pro Trader Discord. All right, and I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, yeah, that's where I am. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, Flesh and Blood. We're all over the place. Uh, once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering, singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order. Support this podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 251. Uh, 250 last week. We didn't really talk about that. It's a big number. Um... Not quite five years yet, getting close, but uh, another good one. And I'm looking forward to glossing over all of our mistakes next week and delivering (laughs) our successes. And I will see you then. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.